So let's open our Bibles right now to Ezekiel chapter 24 and look at a watched pot over boil. In Cleveland, Ohio, Dr. Yazid Essa was found guilty of aggravated murder in the death of his wife, Rosemary. He apparently laced his wife's calcium supplements with cyanide. Then he encouraged her to take one as she headed out the door to spend time with a friend, February 24, 2005. Rosemary Essa faded in and out of consciousness on her journey, crossing the median and clipping another car, prosecutors said. Her SUV idled slowly forward until a witness to the accident chased down the vehicle, hopped into the passenger seat, and pulled the emergency brake. She was pronounced dead within the hour at Hillcrest Hospital. The defendant's demeanor after his wife's death was a major consideration of the jury in convicting him. Listen to this excerpt from an article describing the trial. Dr. David Dolanak, the deputy coroner who uh, performed Rosemary S.'s autopsy, told jurors that the defendant appeared calm, composed, and matter-of-fact in his dealings with the coroner's office. It was not the typical behavior of a grieving husband, stunned by the sudden death of his young and healthy wife, he said. Gino Cassaro, who at the time was a staff nurse at Hillcrest Hospital and the clinical manager for the emergency room, also testified that Essa's behavior moments after his wife was pronounced dead was peculiar and memorable. While Rosemary Essa's two brothers sobbed at her bedside, clinging to their dead sister's body, Yazid Essa stood silently at the foot of the gurney, Cassero told jurors. Cassero recalled that Essa's arms were crossed and he watched the outpouring of grief without reaction. Then he approached one of his brothers-in-law, Cassero said, tapped him on the shoulder and said, Let's go. Now, I wonder what they would have thought about Ezekiel's demeanor. The prophet's wife is going to die suddenly. Ezekiel is going to go to work the very next day. More than that, he's not going to practice any of the normal behaviors of a grieving spouse that are expected in the Jewish culture. But this is, after all, Ezekiel we're talking about. And, of course, there was a lot more going on. And so let's see why he's going to act the way he did. We're going to begin, of course, in verse 1. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day. This very day, the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. Chapters 20 through 23, which we completed, occurred during the seventh year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. Chapter 24 is now two years later. It's the ninth year after the deportation of Jews to Babylon in 597 B.C. So it's somewhere near January of 588 B.C. A historic day. It was the day that God began to fulfill His discipline against Jerusalem, the day her demise and destruction were finally set in motion. Also a historic day for Ezekiel. Up to now, his audience of exiles held out hope that God would spare Jerusalem. Thus, they did not believe or heed Ezekiel's prophecies to the contrary. The word we share with people is true without us needing to give them any proof. Now, don't get me wrong. There is proof aplenty. We could appeal to creation as proof. Fulfilled prophecy is certainly a proof of the Word of God. So is the testimony of a transformed life. 
the irrefutable resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is proof of the gospel. But you know what I mean. You share with someone and because a miracle doesn't happen right in front of them, they act like you have no proof that what you're saying needs some substantiation. Proof is coming, coming pretty quickly in the form of the great tribulation. And proof is coming imminently in the form of the resurrection and rapture of the church. Meantime, remain confident in the infallible, inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. Ezekiel was confident in the Word that God was giving him. Uh, it, it wasn't even like we have, you know, the Word of God in written form where we can study it and look at it and mull it over. I mean, God is telling Ezekiel, hey, this is what's going to happen. And practically no other Jews believed that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Certainly not the temple and the sanctuary. Uh, as far as I can tell, only Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel were on record as saying that God is going to tear all of this down. And yet he continued uh, against all of that opposition in, a, in some very weird prophecies and, and acting out of dramas and stuff like that to be faithful to the Word of God. So how much more we can be faithful? You know, uh, the, when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man ended up in uh, Hades, He said, you know, he said to, to, to Abraham, send somebody who, from the dead to go preach to my brothers. And... He said, well, they, they have the word in the prophets. That's enough. They don't need a, a, a miracle. And so there's plenty of proof. It's not that we don't have proof. We do have apologetics and all of that. But uh, the word of God stands true and it remains true. And this is an encouragement to you as well, because a lot, all of us, no matter what our knowledge and skill level are, we're, we always end up in a situation where there's a question we don't know the answer to. Or we're afraid that somebody's going to put us on the spot. Uh, and I always tell people something I learned... I thought it was the most profound thing I'd ever heard when I was a brand new Christian. I was a pastor at Calvary Riverside, now Harvest Christian Fellowship. I just wanted to tell you how old I was. And, uh, uh, and he said, look, if all you know uh, is you know, that Jesus died and rose from the dead, it's enough to get you saved. And so whatever you know is enough to share with somebody else. Uh, not to say that we shouldn't study and learn and grow and be ready to give an answer for every man of the hope that is in us and all of that. But never think that the Word of God is going to return void no matter what reaction a person has, no matter how much proof they think that they need. Abraham said, hey, they don't need any proof. They have the Word, uh, and, and so we have the Word in some form. So be, be encouraged about the sharing of the Word of God. Verse 3, And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on a pot, set it on, and pour water into it. Gather pieces of meat in it, every good piece, Thigh and shoulder, fill it with choice cuts of meat. Take the choice of the flock, also pile fuel bones under it. Make it boil well and let the cuts simmer in it. So this is more prop prophesying for Ezekiel. This time he puts on a boil. Right? That's what we're, we're into boils here, you know. It, it, it's a great thing. And so he puts on a boil probably in front of his house. He goes through what would be the normal activities of preparing a one-pot supper. His cooking skills, however, let you know that there is an illustration in the works because in verse 6 it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is in it and whose scum is not gone from it. Bring it out piece by piece on which no lot has fallen, for her blood is in her midst. She 
she set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock that it may not be covered. A couple things going on in here. He used a pot whose scum was in it. Uh, the word translated scum is rust. And so it was a rusty old pot that hadn't been cleaned, something you wouldn't cook with. Uh, it reminds me of the time, it, not really a cooking story, but uh, we were visiting, another time I almost killed my children, uh, but we were visiting some friends down in San Clemente, and those were the days of the fold-up uh, you know, playpen. Remember those cheap cardboard fold-up playpens and stuff? And I know they have really Cadillac ones now, but this was just one of those... You know, so we had the playpen, and uh, so it, it uh, must have been Mary. Was it Mary? It was Mary. Yeah, she, she's okay. Uh, she turned out all right. But uh, so it's time for Mary to go to bed, and so we go, you know, put her to bed and, and uh, in the little playpen, and then she cries a little bit later, and she, I figure she needs her bottle. So it's dark in there, and so I feel around, I give her a bottle, and, you know, she goes to sleep, and so everything's fine. So the next morning, you know, I go in there, and, and oh, there's like two bottles in the playpen. There's the bottle we gave her and the bottle we gave her three weeks ago uh, with uh, penicillin in it. And uh, you know what I mean, you know, stuff growing in it, apple juice. Just try it Go, as a science experiment. Just put apple juice in a baby bottle and let it sit for three weeks and see what happens to it. And so, uh, of course, she was drinking that stuff. And uh, we called the hospital in an alias. Uh, hello? Uh, I have a friend... Uh... Just a theoretical question. Uh... Anyway, we figured out she wasn't going to die. Uh, and uh, ne- she didn't ever get sick after that either. But uh, anyway, <laughs> but, you know, things that you wouldn't do, you know. Uh, no, or you might do at home. I mean, how many of you, be honest, how many of you are willing to scrape mold off cheese or a piece of bread and still eat it? All right, there you go. We do not practice that here at the cafe, however. This morning I came into the cafe early for the men's thing and I looked in the trash can as I always do. And uh, no, I don't know why I did that, but there were a bunch of cups in there, like a stack of cups. And I, I reached into the trash can like any normal person. I said, what are these doing? I'm, and Gene says, wait a minute, I'm a certified food manager, which he is, by the way. Uh, we, and, and he said, I said, well, what's the problem? He goes, those cups fell on the ground. Did anybody see them? I mean, you know. And I, we, we had to throw them away. Something I wouldn't do at home, but, you know, we do it here. So anyway, so he's using this scum-filled pot. Uh, the pot of, pot, of course, represented the city of Jerusalem. The cuts of meat were the residents. It was a representation of the effects of the siege against them that had begun. The discussion of blood here has to do with the Levitical laws. It's something we're kind of lost on that. But any exposed blood on the ground had to be covered with dirt as soon as possible. So if you're Jewish and you're out mowing your lawn and you know you reached under and you cut your fingers off uh, on the blade, one of the things you had to be concerned about immediately besides stopping the blood was covering the blood that was on the ground because it was one of the Levitical laws that blood couldn't lay exposed. One of those things that set Jews apart from Gentiles. Uh, Now, the leaders and the laity in Jerusalem had degenerated into a violent society. We've seen that in previous studies. Lots of innocent blood had been shed in Jerusalem. 
Whether or not they actually left blood uncovered isn't the point. Spiritually speaking, they refused to acknowledge their lawlessness and God saw the innocent blood that they had shed as if it had gone uncovered. And so God was going to treat them the way they treated the poor and the widow and the orphan by bringing violence against them. It would be like spilling blood on a rock so it couldn't be absorbed, left uncovered. So He was going to expose their violence by being violent to them, giving them uh, what they had asked for, in a sense, by ignoring His law. And so in verse 9, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I too will make the pyre great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the spices and let the cuts be burned up. Then set the pot empty on the coals that it may become hot and its bronze may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. She has grown weary with lies and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness because I have cleansed you and you were not clean. You were not cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. And so as this cooking demonstration continued, Ezekiel stoked the fire so that the pot itself, uh, once empty of the meat, would just burn up completely. It represented, of course, a total and complete and a final destruction. The pot, the illustration is the pot couldn't be cleaned anymore and the only way to totally clean it was to burn it up. And that's what happened. Now, Ezekiel has been asked to do some very strange things as God's prophet, this among them giving a cooking demonstration. I mean, it would be like you coming to church on Sunday morning and instead of having our regular message, we did something weird each Sunday. You know, uh, seriously, I was on stage with a, a kitchen and doing a cooking demonstration. And only in this demonstration, uh, we just burned everything up and the pot started burning. Of course, we can't do that. We'd only get so far before the firefighters in our fellowship would have something to say about that. They're always looking, those guys. I was on it. Monday night, they're looking around. I say, hey, quit looking around. Just enjoy yourselves. We're not burning anything. You know, I appreciate those guys, but, you know, it's like being a cops and firemen. They have their own way of looking at things. You know, I've become a little bit paranoid from being around cops, especially. But Ezekiel's been asked to do some strange things. He was a voluntary mute. Do you remember that? Way back in chapter 3, I believe it was, we learned that God told him he couldn't speak unless he told him to say something. And so voluntarily he became a mute. He could talk, but he didn't. He only spoke when God gave him something to say. What he is next asked to do is in a whole other realm of obedience to God. Verse 15, also the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips, do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and the next morning I did as I was commanded. Now just so we're clear about this, I think you understand, here's what happened. Ezekiel's wife died suddenly. He was not to mourn for her in any of the customary ways and he went back to work prophesying the very next morning. 
We'll have more to say about that in a minute. Verse 19, And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us that you behave so? Now, I will say this in thinking about this. The Jewish exiles were more considerate than most people who observed this kind of behavior. Remember the story I began with? Well, we knew he was guilty because he didn't show the right grief. I, I'm afraid that I wouldn't show the, enough grief. You know, I'm, I, I, do, you, do you ever worry about that? Because that's all you ever see on 2020 or 4040 or 48 hours or whatever shows are, you know, the Geraldo show or something. They always talk about how the person didn't have the right reaction. The mother, you know, and a lot of times it's true. The people are guilty, but but I don't I, it, it would scare me to have the right. Re- I don't know what, you know, I'm I'm kind of a wrong reaction kind of a guy. And then as a Christian, you factor that in and you think, what is the right reaction exactly? And I can see people saying that. And, and I just think, just, just a personal thing with me, I think we need to be careful judging people's demeanor. Uh, you don't know what's going on in a person's heart. I've been privileged to be around a lot of death and dying. And um, there's no accounting for the way people act. Uh, same families raised the same way, brothers and sisters. You know, the individual, maybe the father, the mother, they'll be in there dying, laying on their deathbed, and one of the siblings won't leave the parent's side. They're just there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sleeping, eating, you know, just holding. The, and then the minute that individual dies, they, they're out of there. They, their sibling has been outside the whole time not wanting to see that and the minute the person dies they're in there spending time with and you know and and all of us have an opinion about that we all do if you're honest you think well wait a minute i'm in this category no i'd be in this category i'd be in the category of the out of town sibling let me know when it's over you know and so and i've ta- I've, I've listened as families have talked about you know who's reacting correctly and who's reacting incorrectly and you know, there is no correct reaction to these kinds of things. Some people are just stunned. They react months later in a, almost a post-traumatic stress kind of a thing. Uh, in my chaplain training, you know, we do uh, critical incident stress debriefing. And the psychologists and the mental health people think they have everybody figured out in terms of how everybody's going to react. And quite honestly, I've been around firefighters and police officers who act very differently. They're, they're really not as stressed out as the psychologists think they should be because they know the Lord. They have a support system. They, they have a, a different demeanor about them. So we have to be very careful about judging people by how they're acting and reacting and what, whether, what their face looks like and those kinds of things. Uh, we all do it, but we need to be careful about it. And so these people, at least they didn't assume that Ezekiel killed his wife the way Geraldo would. You know, they, they understood that something more was going on. They didn't assume Ezekiel had anything to do with it based on his calm demeanor. They saw it had to signify something. By now they understood that everything in Ezekiel's life was a sign. Maybe no one expected the death of his wife to be a sign, but it was. And so in verse 20, Then I answered them, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword, and you shall do as I have done. 
You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall be on your heads, your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is a sign to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. And so like Ezekiel, after the death of his beloved wife, the exiles in Babylon were to not mourn for the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's a way of looking at this. According to one source I read, the customary mourning for the dead was not appropriate if the individual was killed for having committed a capital offense. Ezekiel was thus representing to the Jews in exile that their relatives and countrymen in Jerusalem were being judged for their offenses and should not be mourned as if what happened to them was a tragedy. What happened to them was judgment. And so Ezekiel said, you're going to have to react this way because it's an acknowledgement of God's Word and of what God is doing. You know, the Jews were depending on God's love for His city and especially its sanctuary to hold back judgment. They had a false trust in external manifestations of God's covenant with them. Everything was external to the Jews. They, as we've seen in this book, they were committing idolatry right in the temple. On the same day that they would go uh, to worship God, they were up in the hills worshiping uh, Molech and Baal and all these other gods. And they believed that because God had His presence there in the temple, that He wouldn't destroy it. Trusting in the externals. As long as we're on the earth in our current bodies of flesh, we're going to have a tendency to exaggerate the importance of things that are external. Again, it's something we all do. We judge ministries by their size rather than by their depth. God does bless sometimes with size and with numbers, but He also blesses when things are small, when numbers are slight. We should listen to what is being said, examining it for signs of grace and mercy and truth. We should consider the example being set. Is it godly? Is it worldly? We really, you know, we all are familiar with the passage in the book of Acts where Paul goes and he preaches the gospel in Berea. And it says the Bereans were more noble than the others because they went home and they searched out the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And, you know, over the years, even from, uh, well, even from myself, I've said things and then gone, and it's usually Pam, she goes, no, honey, you, you really missed that. You, you didn't get that right. Oh, really? Now, I, I want to argue with her at first because I'm embarrassed, but, and then she'll say, no, that, that's not what it means. And, uh, you know, and, and that's okay because you don't want to be a goof, do you? You want to say it again? I mean, you know, you want to make a doctrine out of it. And so... Uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes. And so a lot of times, you know, I've been in groups, I've told you this before, people, uh, you know, somebody will utter a prophecy. Oh, praise the Lord. And then after you say, hey, what, was, what did that person say? I don't know. But it was glorious. Well, how do you know it was glorious? I don't know. It was just glorious. It was a manifestation of prophecy. But what was said? I don't know. Who cares? All right. And, and you know, think about what you're hearing. I mean, is it really the gospel? Is it, is it you know, filled with grace? Not that, you know, you don't want to always be arguing with people. And I'm not talking about points of, you know, whether you're in mid-trib or post-trib or all that. I'm just talking about the overall ministry. And, and a lot of times we just look at the external and, you know, what the person looks like, whether their ministry is big, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and so we want to look at the heart and, uh, or at least allow God to uh, search our hearts. 
Notice verse 24 where God said, And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord. Everything God was doing, everything He was allowing, was a discipline so His people would turn to Him. Yes, it was severe, but He had tried everything else for many, many years. They only ignored Him and plunged deeper into their sin. Sometimes the Lord comes to us and the things that happen in our lives, they're just severe. Sometimes we bring them upon ourselves. Other times they just seem to happen to us as a trial, uh, but they're severe. But everything God does is so that we will turn to Him. When we are analyzing life, let's think more about the motive of God than His methods. You know, people in the world, they look at, they blame everything on God. Every tragedy, every uh, you know, hurricane, every flood, every earthquake, it, you know, it's all God. Even Christians blame it on God in the sense that they say it's His judgment upon this people or that people or whatever. Uh, let's think of God's motive. What is God's motive always? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, no matter what I see, no matter how severe it seems to me, I understand that God's motive in allowing it, being behind it, is that He's trying to bring men to repentance. That He loves lost mankind. And that if something falls, if there's a judgment that falls, it is a last resort because God has done everything else that He can do and, uh, to, to win and to woo a rebellious person or people. And then even in the judgment, in allowing the severity of it, He's still trying to bring people to Himself. And so let's just remember God's motive. Since God is love, His motive is always love. Some of you as parents, you understand this. You have had to do, uh, within the realm of you know, what is right and biblical, you've had to do severe discipline with your children. Uh, you know, you've had to not take them to McDonald's and you know, just, or threaten never again to take them to Grandma's house or whatever it is. You know, but I'm, you know, I'm kidding. I love it, you know. I told you about the time I was in the bank and the one lady, the kid was just out of control. It was so, he was so out of control, it was hilarious. And she kept threatening him. And finally she said, if you don't you know, come over here right now, you're never going to watch television ever again in your life. And I think everybody had a sense that that's not true. That's just, that's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, I mean, your life is a long time. So anyway... Uh, so, you know, but sometimes you have to do things that are severe uh, out of love. And God has done that in our lives sometimes to get us where He needs us to be so that our heart is tender, so that He can work in our heart, so that we're not playing with Christianity anymore, so that we're living it out, and so that we have a hope for the future. And so think of God's motive rather than His methods. Verse 25, And you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy and their glory the desire of their eyes, and that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters. On that day, no one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be opened to him who has escaped. You shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Your mouth will be opened. God is going to end Ezekiel's muteness. It would be assigned to them that God had not abandoned them. He was saving them the only way he could, get, uh, he could, given their rebellion. 
And so what a, a wonderful thing it is to see that perspective. Now, asking Ezekiel to not mourn for his beloved wife in the customary manner, one of the really difficult things that God asked a prophet to do. Not, I mean, some of these Old Testament guys, you know, you look at it and you think, wow, I'd, I don't know if I could do that. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm glad I wasn't born in the Old Testament. It was a part of the territory that came with the call to be a prophet. Great privilege was accompanied by great responsibility. This far into the book of Ezekiel, 24 chapters, I think all of us have a, enough respect for Ezekiel to think he's the man. And if God asks him to not mourn for his wife, he's not going to do it. And I can respect that. I can honor that. I can be moved by that. It's part of the territory. This past Sunday morning, I alluded to the fact that since you are a believer, your life is no longer your own. You belong to the Lord. There is thus the potential every day for the Lord to call upon you to act or react in a way that is far from customary. Luckily for us, for the most part, it's going to be things like returning blessing for cursing, forgiving those who have wronged you, loving your wife or showing respect to your husband, showing respect to your parents, being submissive to those in authority, bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Beatitudes, those kinds of things. In other words, in the normal Christian life, God is already asking you to live in a way that shows responsibility to your privileges. It may not be as extreme or as weird as having your spouse die and you going to work the next day for God and not doing any mourning. I mean, that's extreme. But from a worldly standpoint, from a person living in the world, a worldly person, a carnal person, a non-believer, looking at you, returning blessing for cursing, submitting to the authority of even a, 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 you know, a harsh uh, employer, those kinds of things, those normal Christian things we always talk about, this is weird because they don't want to do that. They don't do that. They don't even see the reasoning behind it. And it's every bit as weird to them as Ezekiel not mourning for his wife. The Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians not to sorrow over the death of unbelievers as if they had no hope. Now, he didn't tell them they couldn't have sorrow, but he says, don't sorrow as those who have no hope. And this is why when we do funerals, they're, uh, for a believer, they're joyous occasions. Even Christians have a hard time with this sometimes. Even Christians fall into the culture of silence when it comes to the... Oh, God bless you. You know, as if you're going to wake the dead. It's crazy. And so when a beloved, a, a beloved believer dies, or my new word, a beloved, uh, hey, I'm trying to think if it could become a doctrine. But uh, anyway, if, if a believer dies, and I mean, let's rejoice, let's sing worship songs, let's get excited about that. Sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. That's different from the world, isn't it? How many funerals have you been to where people just, they look like they're going to commit suicide because they don't know what's going on, where their loved one is, where they're going to go when they die. I mean, it's depressing. Or they're faking themselves out with some kind of crazy, you know, philosophy uh, about being in a better place and all that kind of stuff. People say the dumbest things at funerals. 
that things that have no basis in fact or reality. It's crazy. Peter and James told us to not think trials are anything strange. Well, that's a weird one, isn't it? Trial hits your life, and, and all of a sudden you think, oh yeah, this is normal. This is the normal Christian life. Whoa, what a joy. People think you're crazy. They treat you the way they treated Ezekiel. Sometimes it hits even harder. Jesus once said in Matthew 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters, father or mother or wife or children or land for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus isn't talking about abandoning your family or anything crazy like that. He's pointing out the very real situation that when you become a Christian, many times your family abandons you. They don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And, and, and you're on the outs. And, and God calls you to ministry, calls you to serve, and they don't understand that. And a, a lot of Christians, you know, they, it's a struggle, you know. Um, uh, quite honestly, in this area, I think I can say this, uh, over the years I've seen a lot of people from a Roman Catholic background, I have that background so I can speak to this, they're a Roman Catholic background, but it's very, it's kind of fierce here in this area because it's so involved with family uh, and, and social life and all that. And it's very hard sometimes for somebody who is Roman Catholic and then becomes a Christian, they become born again, to break away from that tradition. I'm not saying they leave or abandon their family, but to break away from the, the Roman Catholic tradition uh, and it's like they have their foot in both worlds because there's so much family pressure. And Jesus is saying, hey, sometimes you take your stand and you let your family react to you. That's extreme, isn't it? It's no more extreme than what Ezekiel was called to do. And so what I'm trying to do is say that discipleship is acting and reacting very differently than we would apart from Jesus Christ. And like Ezekiel, we're called upon to give a visual representation of what it means to know Christ. In our case, we're once, or uh, in the New Testament, we're called living letters that are read by all men. Uh, and so people look at you and they kind of read you and they understand where you're coming from. It makes me appreciate Ezekiel all the more. He wasn't so very different than I am. He was a man of like passions. But if our single passion is Jesus Christ, we'll be able to yield to His indwelling Spirit and we'll be able to reveal His grace to the watching world and people looking at us from the outside will think that our behavior is strange. It's different. It's empowered. And they'll want to know something about it. They may not always agree with it. They may not be excited about it at first. But it will be odd to them the way Ezekiel's behavior was odd. And it will be a sign to them that God is real, that He's alive, and that He lives in us. Amen? Amen.